The past is written, but the future is left for us to write. And we have powerful tools, Rios. Openness, optimism, and the spirit of curiosity. All they have is secrecy and fear. And fear is the great destroyer. What is this? The Vintage Picard Podcast. It's um, discussion, analysis, debate about Star Trek Picard. All right, good. It's really quite exciting, actually. Very good, fine. I'll listen to it. Engage. Hello, Picard people, and welcome to Vintage Picard. A podcast covering Star Trek Picard and Star Trek at large. We are here to talk to you once again. So very excited to cover another episode of Star Trek Picard. The wonderful, well, your mileage may vary, but if you're listening to this show, hopefully you will agree. The wonderful show on CBS All Access and I guess Amazon Prime if you're in jolly old England. And, uh, you know, if you are across the pond, cheerio, pip pip. I, I, I haven't checked the metrics on our, where our listeners are in the world, so I could be offending a whole bunch of people right now. But anyway, I, I'm, oh boy. Okay, it's going to be one of those shows. I'm sorry already. I'm deeply concerned about what is happening here. Um, so anyway, I, I, think, I think it's only fair if I'm going to be offending you that you know who I am. Agreed. I, uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's only fair. I am Gary McComiskey, <laughs> longtime Star Trek fan. And of course, my uh, my steadfast co-host here on this journey. Hello, I'm James Sajazi. How are you, buddy? I'm doing all right, and um, actually, I'm I'm cowering in my house, surrounded by toilet paper from the coronavirus. Yeah, I, I noticed you <laughs> peeking out from behind one of those rolls. You just, just be careful you don't get buried there. Yeah, thank you. I I, th- I think I made a pretty good fort here, so uh, you know we'll see how that holds up for a while. How you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing well. I think the, uh, the, the, the streamers that you made out of masks uh-huh. in the background, I think those are very nice. Thank you very much. And the, the hand sanitizer pyramid, yep. that's, that's just, mwah, that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Which, by the way, I never realized that's called a chef's kiss, that mwah thing, but I see it everywhere now written out as chef's kiss, and I don't know why that's suddenly a thing. Internet, please tell us, because we're ignorant of such things. Many things. <laughs> anyway, I, I did want to mention, just before we get going, I wanted to throw in a needless tagline about you and me, James, because you and I, you and I is proper English, you and I, James, are a couple of guys who take Star Trek seriously. Ourselves? Not so much, as you can probably tell already from the podcast. But uh, as I said, we do take Star Trek quite seriously, and there is quite a lot of Star Trek to cover on this particular podcast. So, uh, I mean, I want to say, I guess since we were joking about it a little bit just now, but since things are kind of devolving uh, globally right now. I just want to say on behalf of James and myself to you, the listener and anybody else within the sound of my voice, just, you know, don't panic, but take care of yourself, you know, try and stay safe, take whatever precautions you need to take. You don't need me to tell you this, but I feel like I need to tell you anyway, as a responsible podcaster. So, you know, don't take unnecessary risks, 
do the hygiene stuff that you've seen uh, on TV and, and read about. Just like don't hoard stuff like we were joking about before because people who really need it need it. So don't be a jerk. Just like, you know, do what you need to do to take care of yourself and try to take care of, you know, your community at large by being a responsible citizen. That's all. That's my pious Star Trek speech that I've gotten out of the way here at the top of the show. Well done. Yes, and don't be like Narek. Take a regular shower. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, don't be a Narek, I think, is a, a just a good rule of thumb <laughs> overall, generally. I mean, there's a lot of people on this show that I could suggest you not emulate, but yes. Narek is near the top. <laughs> Absolutely. That's sound advice at any time. But anyway, let us get this review underway. About time. And specifically, we will be covering today on today's episode, we will be covering Star Trek Picard Season 1, Episode 8, Endless Exposition. Your information is incorrect. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's that's not right. That's, uh, I... I have been a little under the weather. I think I misread that. My, my eyesight hasn't been. Don't worry. Um, <clears throat> season one, episode eight, Broken Pieces. That's a terrible Picard. Oh, yes, it is. All right. I'm not going to try the... Dep- yeah, come on. I, I'm making an executive decision. I'm not going to do the Picard voice tonight more than... Well, I might try to lapse into it just out of habit, but I'm not going to go out of my way to do it just because I don't think my voice can handle it tonight. All right. So, uh, Endless Exposition. No, no. We decided broken, that broken, was not the yeah. title. I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. That, that's no, not the title. The that's just thing. the function. <laughs> I felt like I just filled out all the wrong circles on a test. Like, oh, no. No, no. That's not actually what it's called. That's just what it does over and over again in this show. That's enough. You made your point. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, we start the episode with some beautiful, gorgeous shots of space. Star Trek does like their nebula. And, you know, this episode doesn't disappoint there. And uh, so we we go spinning through the the vastness of space. We kind of fly in on a star system or a solar system that has eight stars in it, which we will come to find out later is rather significant. And we hear a voiceover by Commodore O. And she's talking about the mystery of the eightfold stars, which is what drew them to this system years ago and we find out that we are coming upon aya is how i'm pronouncing it aia it's aya or aya or something else entirely i'm calling it aya the grief world which is a dead planet from the looks of things it actually looks an awful lot like the california desert but um <laughs> you know it's funny how these things work out what a coincidence yes but uh it, it could also just be like a dirt parking lot frankly for all we see of it but that's neither here nor there and um on this dead planet we get a caption that informs us that the proceedings we are about to see occur 14 years ago 14 years prior to the current events of the episode and we see this cloaked cabal that are kind of uh, clustered in a circle around a weird glowy thing, which I will call a cosmic pizza table. (laughs) You know, like one of those tables that they put in the middle of a pizza to keep the box from touching the pizza. uh, Is that just a New York thing? I don't, I hope not. I mean, that's pretty uh, important piece to make sure that the cheese doesn't hit the cover of the pizza box. I don't know. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a universal thing. I hope so, because that will make this make a lot more sense. Yeah. But if not, know that here in New York, in the middle of a pizza, 
they put this little plastic white table looking thing and they just stick it in the middle of the pie and it prevents the top of the pizza box from touching the pizza and messing it up. And that, that's just what it does. Pizza table. It's anyway, it's probably a reference that didn't need to be explained. Almost certainly. But there's one of those just sitting out in the middle of the grief planet. Looks like the only thing. It's like this glowing pizza table that's hovering over this lake of kind of silvery goo and uh that lake of silvery goo is called the admonition that's what we learn from O. and uh so we find out that the discovery of this glowy pizza table is what birthed the jat vash they say now so here's here's my first nitpick with the show it didn't take long i know it never does true enough they say that this was hundreds of years ago they don't specify how many hundreds but hundreds not thousands they say hundreds of years ago is is when they birthed the jat vash at the discovery of this thing and i take issue with that because so i thought that sounded wrong so i specifically went back and double checked in episode two when they first introduced the concept of the jat vash and Laris specifically mentions that the Jatvash have existed for thousands of years. So something doesn't truck there. I mean, I know it's all rumor and innuendo, but it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up. It's inconsistent. And I want answers. Dang it. I'm under no obligation to tell you that. That's the Romulans for you. I won't get them, but I want them. Also, just real quick. Just going back and rewatching that scene made me remember how much I miss Laris and Jabon. Yeah, me too, man. What a ripoff. I hope they'll be a bigger part of season two. I really desperately do. They should join the crew. That's an excellent idea. Absolutely. But uh, anyway, they're not in this episode, sadly. So that's the most you're going to get about them here. Enjoy it while you can. Very well. So, as I said, there is this cabal of cloaked figures, which... Given that it's the Romulans, the fact that they are cloaked seems appropriate. Uh (laughs) I know, I know. Inexcusable and understandable. But um, so we see that Nerissa is there. We also see Ramalama Ding Dong, as well as a whole (laughs) bunch of other unnamed Romuladies. And the whole proceedings is being overseeded over. That's not a word. Overseeded? No, not exactly. The whole proceeding is being overseen by Commodore O. She is the head cloaker. She's the narrator of the scene. And she explains to the people there that they will probably go mad. Many of them will go mad when they experience this. But this is what the Jat Vash was founded um, to prevent, what the knowledge they are about to gain. And, and it's important that they all know. So, uh, and, and specifically, that is... They were founded to prevent the return of the destroyers, whatever that means. So they grab onto the glowy pizza table in unison and they all get seemingly these these images of destruction and and uh, chaos and death uploaded directly into their brains. And uh, the sequence that we see is at least at the beginning, it starts off as going from what I will describe as from iRobot morphing into data and then into some explosions. I mean, I don't know if that's actually what it was supposed to be or if we're just supposed to be reminded of data, like it was something very similar, but 
the Sung type Android is definitely something that we were supposed to get the, the sense of from this image. It was very quick. And then, so they all get this information very quickly uploaded into their brain. And then everyone, but Narissa goes absolutely nuts. Many of them kill themselves or try one of them like takes a disruptor to her head and blows her brains out. The other one bashes her skull in with a rock. <laughs> Somebody like claws her face with uh, her own nails and, and scars herself. And uh, Ramda is just like on the floor grabbing at her brain and cowering and screaming. And then uh, Narissa is just standing there and turns to Commodore O and she's like, hey, we have to stop this. <laughs> It's like, no kidding. Why do you think we're here? But she doesn't actually say that. What she does say is, we will. But how? <laughs> Through the power of exposition. <laughs> um, what they, they reveal, actually, that they are about to set in motion the events that we saw on Mars. So we get definitive proof now that the Romulans, and specifically the Shafash, were responsible for the happenings on Mars. One one last thing that we find out is Narissa goes to try and comfort Ramda, and we discover that uh, Ramda is her auntie. It is also worth mentioning that these images from the admonition that they got uploaded into their brains are the same images that Commodore O fed Gerardi via mind meld in, in her meeting that set her on her path of murder and destruction. So... That's why she was in such distress and vomiting. So, I mean, I guess considering most of the Romulans killed themselves, a little indigestion is, you know, a pretty good bargain there. Yeah, for a meek character, Gerardi's pretty tough. So it would seem. <laughs> Although she did actually try to kill herself. So, yeah, eventually. There is she that. played the long game on that one. Right, yeah, it took a little while for her brain to process. Mm-hmm. Romulans are more about the decisive action. <laughs> yeah, right. Their first instinct, death. Yeah. Well, that, that does actually seem to f track with what we know about them. So all this, uh, there's just a little bit of speculation I want to engage in here before we continue. So we have a sense that something terrible happens when there is artificial life. It, it, leads to something awful. And we'll learn a little more about that as the episode goes on. Not learn more per se, but get a better sense of what they fear. But I am wondering if this is tied into the Discovery storyline from the last season. So spoilers, if you haven't seen the last season of Discovery, I'll give you three, two, one. So in the last season of Discovery, the the through line for maybe the second half of the season was that section 31 had created this artificial intelligence to kind of coordinate their actions called control. And what happened is, you know, James, you were talking about T2 last week on the podcast, basically control evolves into Skynet ah. and tries to take over the Federation and wipe out all organic life while making itself some kind of exalted form of artificial life that would be able to become the only type of life in the galaxy. And 
it's ultimately not thwarted per se. It's convoluted. You'd have to watch the season to really get an understanding of what it was. But I am wonder now the the timelines. If this really was thousands of years ago that this happened, the timelines don't match up. But um, hundreds of years ago, it tracks with the events of the show. But there was, I mean, there were also time travel shenanigans in the last season of Discovery. So it's possible that Control traveled back in time and did all this. Or it's something else entirely. I'm just, the way they they like to link things and tie things together on this show, and, you know, given that they are trying to build an expanded Star Trek universe now on, on the streaming service, I'm wondering if that's going to wind up tying in somehow. So that's just food for thought. But uh, not something we need to think about right now, because right now we have to talk about the Borg Cube. Specifically, the Borg Cube wherein Nerissa is tenderly tenderly caring for Ramda, who is still laid out unconscious on the slab after her, I guess, encounter, you would call it, with Soji. She seems to have never woken up. And Nerissa is kind of lovingly telling her that she's being lazy and needs to get up because (laughs) the doctors say there's nothing really wrong with her. But what we do actually learn is that Ramda took in Nerissa and Narek when their parents died, when they were very young. So we learn that they are very close, in fact, which I guess is why they were Confederates in the Jat Vash. One assumes Ramda brought Nerissa in on it, but, you know, who knows. Um, the, the other thing, the major thing that we learn in this scene is that Ramda went so crazy that when she was assimilated, she broke the Borg. <laughs> she is the reason why the Borg cube completely like that. They're I forget what it was exactly, but they're like neural cluster or whatever shut down when she got assimilated. And, uh, you know, James. Wouldn't it be crazy if some scrappy podcaster had predicted something very much along those lines about a month ago on Twitter? Wouldn't that be nuts? That would be something else. Yeah. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if something like that had happened? (laughs) I can't. That, That strains credulity. You finished? Anyway, not important. Nerissa, we learn, will join the Romulan fleet against the synths after she finishes shutting down said Borg cube. And Ramda can join her if she wakes up in time. So that's that's a kind offer. Indeed. But it seems like now that Nerissa's no longer got Soji and she, you know, her, the usefulness of the Borg cube as a thing has ended now she's just going to shut down the whole thing and i have to say james this this is just one more example of how ideology driven societies are full of it because the jatvash who we learn are controlling this whole enterprise no pun intended can't expect me to believe that with the borg cube their entire deal is dedicated to stopping the spread of artificial life and you know intelligence and and all that you know kind of that framework from growing and that that's what they've claimed their mission is about that's that's why they did the whole Mars deal they're they're morally and completely opposed to it 
but apparently they're not morally opposed to profiting off of it because they, if you remember, the whole thing with the Borg Cube is that they are harvesting implants from these Borg and selling them off to who knows who in the greater galaxy who could be using this Borg technology to create who knows what artificially. So, you know, their high and mighty ideals about being against, you know, the evil spread of artificial blah, 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 go out the window when there's a few credits to be made. Maybe that's season two to, to look forward to. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's just it's it's a bunch of hooey is what it is. Capitalism always wins, apparently. Yeah, I'm no fan of the uh, Romulans either. And uh, it, it's really quite odd to see their hypocrisy and, and the Jat Fosh as well. And their overall ignorance is that, uh, yeah, in one scene, I'm pretty sure that they said that it was hundreds of thousands of years ago when the uh, synthetics destroyed the every universe and things. And now right, for, the first time, yeah, the first time. Right. So I don't even know if this is an alternate universe or a new, whatever. Uh, I'm not even going to open that can of worms. And now in their own little world, they're looking to do it again. And now they're blaming Mr. Data and, and other people and uh, Soji on this and, and stuff, which we'll fast forward to. And of course, uh, Gary will get to on uh, Picard's take on that with the synthetic life. So I just, I don't understand it. And the, the, the first scene where they're standing around the little, the pizza table and uh, supposed to be some sort of guardians of the galaxy type thing. And really uh, very selfish and ignorant and foolish, if you ask me. And to put all of that effort into this and they still couldn't find Soji, you know? So, oh, oh, and the infiltration of Starfleet, by the way, too. Uh, that, that's pretty convenient how Commodore O just went through the ranks and, and became a Commodore. So uh, that that's something else I'm I'm kind of... I don't know. They just seem to be contradictions in everything associated with the Romulans. So I guess that's the only consistency with them is that they say one thing and do another. I would just like to point out my own restraint and, and pat myself on the back here for weeks now, months even. I have been resisting the impulse to make a Commodore 64 joke because I figure <laughs> it's hack and everyone else will have done it. So uh, if you know me, you know that that's that's really quite quite a feat that I have managed to accomplish. So I just wanted to pat myself on the back for that. Deservedly so. Yes. <laughs> well done, sir. The most impressive accomplishment. No, not really. I mean, it's just not making bad jokes like anybody can do that. I just I find it I find it uh, something that requires a concerted effort. Yeah, well, I cracked with uh, Mars Attacks. <laughs> Regarding your alternate universe or new universe or what have you, that actually reminded me of a Douglas Adams quote from one of the Hitchhiker's books, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Have you read those, James? I, I have, don't remember if we've... You have not? No. No, I have not. Okay. All right. Well, that's fine. It's a it's a, a trilogy in five parts. What? Okay. Yes. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. But specifically, the quote that I am reminded of, and I may be paraphrasing this slightly, but essentially, there is a theory that says that if anyone ever found out exactly what the universe was for, that it would immediately cease to exist and be replaced with one that is even stranger. There is another theory that this has already happened. Ah, thank you. So... Yeah, that that uh, that's just what jumped into my head. Not important. I my head is a strange and crazy place. It's becoming all too evident. 
No wonder why you like science fiction so much. But elsewhere on the Borg Cube, yes, I know it's been a while, but we are actually still talking about the Borg Cube. You're certain. Elsewhere on the Borg Cube, the Romulan Mook Squad has found Elnor. He's hiding in Hugh's office, apparently. And uh, so, actually, I want to take a step back, James, speaking of Hugh's office. I want to take a step back and clarify something from last week, because after watching this episode, I went back and rewatched that last scene from last episode and it all clicked into place. So the place where Elnor was hiding at the end of the last episode was Hugh's office. It wasn't a random catwalk. Yeah. He was hiding in Hugh's office. And as he enters Hugh's office, he sees hanging from the desk the, you know, first alert badge that he <laughs> winds up using to call seven of nine. So it was not Picard's call oh. button. It was Hughes that he had for some reason left dangling from his desk out in plain sight. Okay. So yeah. So Thank that you. is one mystery solved. Well done. I sir. apologize for not noticing that last week. Quite right. So you should. But anyway, so he's hiding out in this office after having pressed that button. Well, in your and defense, just real quick, it, it's not yep. like it said office and Hugh on the outside. So don't worry <laughs> about it. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I missed the uh, the wooden plaque <laughs> yes, that's exactly. on his desk that, you know, said Office of the Director, Hugh Iborg. Right. <laughs> and the little cat hanging from the tree, hanging there, poster. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I do hate Mondays, though, so uh, <laughs> I can relate. Uh, I want to make a joke about Garfield and assimilating lasagna, but it's, I really, let's just, let's just move on. I don't. Ridiculous. Oh boy. Anyway, so, so they found Elnor in Hugh's office. And so the, the first thing I took away from this scene, James, yeah. is that Romulan flashbangs are weak sauce. Like the Romulan stormtroopers. Well, that's a wrong franchise, but the Romulan Mook squad tosses in a flashbang grenade. It goes off. Elnor sees it and kind of half-heartedly closes his eyes, does not bother to stuff up his ears. It goes off right in his face, and mere seconds later, he is completely fine to take on a room full of Romulan guards. And take them on, he does. He disposes of a couple of them before a couple more grab him and handcuff him, uh, which actually doesn't seem to be that big of a detriment because as they're doing that seven comes in phasers blasting and uh, you know, here's seven to save the day. But you know, Elnor is a fan of Kuat Malat's lib. So he, he believes in equality in all fighting and he, uh, he, he does his own share of saving himself. Even handcuffed, he manages to mess up a bunch of Romulans and between the two of them, they are able to clean house. And, uh, and, and so seven, once the fire dies down, the metaphorical fire dies down. Seven's like, where is Hugh? expecting that it was Hugh who made the call and what is going on on this cube. And Elnor answers her with a great big hug. Aww, he loves her, I guess. He's just happy to see her. And it's a big old squeeze into credits. So on the other side of said credits, we are back on the SS Van Halen. Rios is looking at Soji, who we assume has just beamed onto the ship and is completely traumatized by this. Visibly, 
like we kind of go into his head and see that he's not he's not really hearing Picard talking to him. He's having some kind of PTSD moment. There seems to be a lot of that going around on this show. That is an understatement. Mm. So eventually we find out that Picard is actually asking him or demanding really a secure comms link with Starfleet. And uh, he also wants to lay in a course to the nearest starbase, which in this case is Deep Space 12. Boo. <sighs> we don't even like all of the casts of Deep Space Nine spread to the four winds at the end of the last episode anyway, James. So I don't know what you're expecting, even if they were going to Deep Space Nine. I don't know what you'd be expecting there. Boo. Yeah. All right. <laughs> fine. So. Uh, all right. Anyway. Cisco's a god now. Come on. Yeah, I know. I know He's, Sorry. he ascended to be one of the prophets or so. I, I'm not getting into that ending, James. Yeah, we don't have time. Sorry. What is the purpose of this? So Rios agrees to all of Picard's demands and he's like, okay, but once we get to there, I'm dropping you off and I am out. I want nothing more to do with any of this. And so he kind of goes off in a huff to make those preparations. Rafi greets him by very sarcastically saying hello to Soji and then opining that Picard already brought one homicidal double agent onto the ship. What does he think he's doing bringing, you know, her? And then, uh, you know, he's he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. She pulls a phaser on Soji and Picard says, you better be prepared to use that thing on me if you're going to use it on her. And she backs down. And she she tells him, like, you don't know anything about this person, Soji. And by the way, you might want to know that Agnes Gerardi, who you brought on here without any kind of background check, happened to be a, a, a cold blooded murderer who not only is being tracked by the Romulans, and is probably an agent of theirs, of the Tal Shiar, she also probably murdered Bruce Maddox in cold blood. We all react differently to authority. So, you know, FYI. <laughs> and Picard's like, well, who told you all that? And hey, look, it's the EMH, the most useless EMH in the history of Starfleet. And uh, so he pops in and he's like, oh, yes, well, you know, she uh, I, I caught her killing Bruce Maddox and she deactivated me. So I figured... I guess that's fine. You never told me about this. Which, again, like, I'm not going to retread all that ground, but that whole thing is ridiculous, James. There is no reason, no reason why he shouldn't have gone and immediately told Rios what's happening. He doesn't answer to Gerardi. He answers to Rios. Exactly. And there at least should have been some sort of a warning signal or an alarm or something. No reason. No reason you're aware of. But that's not... Again, I'm not going to relitigate. There's too much, too much stuff that I have to concentrate on not retreading, James. Uh, I'm going to turn people off if I keep being this negative. True enough. I got to put a happy spin on this. So we go to Picard's hollow study <laughs> and uh, we, we find out that Jean-Luc Picard is sitting at the desk across from what we would assume is a holographic projection of Admiral Clancy from episode two. You know, the one who told Picard to go F himself and, uh, you know, her, oh, that, you remember her, that Admiral Clancy, that charming lady. 
Um, so Picard is engaging in a rousing round of I told you so. And he is uh, explaining to her, explaining is the euphemism that I will use for what he's actually doing. He's explaining to her that he was right all along and she should have listened to him. And he definitely was, by the way, I forgot to mention, I was completely right about all this and you were wrong. So I should get what I want now. And what I want is a squadron. And, you know, you need to listen to me because I get to be condescending now because I was right. And she's like, well, you just shut up. I will give you what you want. Just stop talking. Very well. And so, you know, he gets to feel very pleased with himself as, as she exasperatedly hangs up. And when I was watching this whole thing, one thing struck me, James. One thing more than anything else. More than the fact that Picard's condescension seemed a little out of character. And uh, more than the fact that Clancy had an awfully quick turnaround given how adamantly against his very existence she was in their last meeting. The one thing that struck me more than anything, James, is that that role of Clancy, that would have played so much better if it was Captain Louvois from The Measure of a Man. The, oh, the judge advocate general who presided over Data's trial when Bruce Maddox wanted to take him as property. She and Picard had history. They had a personal history. They had the kind of playful but antagonistic relationship that was bred out of respect, but also had a genuine animosity behind it based on history with the Stargazer. And the fact that that was the Bruce Maddox episode that was all about the right of artificial life to exist as life and not as property, it would have tied this entire series in perfectly. Now, I looked up the actress's IMDb page. It looks like she's primarily a singer and like cabaret performer. Her largest claim to fame seemed to be that she composed The Rose from, uh, what was that movie? That Bette Midler song? The um, beaches or oh, uh, no. um, wind beneath my wings. No, I don't. I don't know. The Rose, the, the very famous song. Um, Some about being a hero. Oh, no, that is. Wind no, beneath my wings. no, that's a different song. I don't know. Yeah, it's that song goes. Some say love. It is real. I want you to stop this immediately. So, you know, that one. So she composed that song and apparently she is she is mainly as i said a singer and performer now she had very few actual acting credits and she her last one was i don't know in the late 90s or early 2000s or something so it's entirely possible that they wanted to get her and they couldn't so that's why they came up with this Clancy character but Louvois would have made so much sense she would have been the perfect I really wish they would have gotten her for the role. And also, too, okay, fine. Maybe some actors and actresses, uh, maybe Lord knows they go on to something else or you can't book them or whatever the case is. So that's not the first time that uh, you get another actor or actress to play the same character. It's not a big deal. The last thing I will say before I, I finish up with this Louvois thing is that the actress that they got to play Clancy, she has a very similar facial look to her. As, as how the actress that played Louvois looks now. And she also has a similar kind of energy and antagonism with Picard. The warmth is gone. Uh, the kind of playfulness is gone, but the energy is very much the same. So 
I feel like they were kind of consciously going in that direction. They just couldn't pull it off for whatever reason. So I just feel like that's a missed opportunity. More is the pity. You finished? But, um, you know, we go elsewhere on the SS Van Halen and we find out that uh, Raffi, who is this, you know, paranoid, super astute uh, hacker and and you know observant person who's able to figure things out that other people can't figure out is uh, in this particular scene implausibly dense because <laughs> she decides she's going to go off and find Rios and she goes to the bridge she heads to the bridge to find Rios and she finds seemingly Rios sitting there at the console plunking away and she starts talking to him but what she doesn't realize in spite of talking to him for a couple of minutes is that he's not dressed like Rios. He doesn't have the same accent that Rios has, and he doesn't speak like Rios or sound like Rios or, you know, have the same basically intelligence of Rios. She's talking to one of the holograms as I think anybody watching the show knew she was from the second we saw him practically, but she doesn't figure it out for a while. She eventually cottons on to the fact that this is Enoch, the emergency navigation hologram, but uh, it, it takes her way longer than it should. And I'm not going to bother. You know my opinions on the writing on this show. I'm not going to retread that ground again, but it's just silly. It's, it's, it really strains credulity. To me, it is impossible to think that Rafi would not have figured that out. Agreed would be difficult. Not impossible. Yeah, and, and, and again, uh, you'll get to this in a minute, but for the characters, and, and we've talked about this in the past too, between Rafi and Rios, that they've served together and they, it was implied that they were pretty good close friends, they really don't know anything about each other. I mean, I don't know that they actually served together. They are old friends. I don't remember if it's expressly said that they were ever crewmates. Fair enough. It stands to reason, but I, I don't know it for fact. Either way, they uh, it's true. You're talking to an old friend or you would know the difference between your friend, I hope, your friend and uh, an emergency knockoff of that friend. Like, if I jumped on the podcast with you and I said, hey, James, how you doing? And you said, hello, Gary, how are you doing today? Or no, no. Even in a different accent. If I jumped on the podcast with you and I said, hey, James, how you doing? And you said, hi, Gaddy, how you doing? And I said, you know, I'm doing okay. Let me ask you something. Did you get to watch Star Trek this week? You know, I have heard things about that show, Star Trek. I think I might like to watch it sometime. Yeah, you know, because I watched it. And I, like, obviously that wouldn't be you. <laughs> This is foolish. I appreciate your observation skills, too. I just, it's just pointless. It's pointless. Anyway, so <laughs> once she does finally cotton on to the obvious, she asks what he knows about Soji, I guess based on Rios's reaction. And he says he volunteers for seemingly no reason. I can identify her for you. And he scans his database and he says her name is Jana. And she's like, no, her name is Soji, actually. And he's like, um, ask me about astronavigation. <laughs> okay. As it happens, she does have an astronavigation question or astronavigation adjacent. And so conveniently, 
Rathi was able to spy on the Romulans on the artifact when they were hanging in space and she was waiting around for Picard to finish his business over there. And she happened to see them drawing all of the Romulan XBs drawing this same pattern of symbols that uh, they were they were just, you know, over and over etching. And she wants to know if he can identify them. Because, you know, it looks like it might be something celestially oriented. And he says, uh, it's, it's this, what she pulls up is this series of interlocking rings with little dots scattered throughout them. And what Rafi says is it's eight circles. It's not. It's actually seven circles with eight dots, as, as I mentioned, but uh, the art department doesn't get script approval and we're not supposed to notice that it's actually just seven circles. So um, it, it's, she said, oh, I, you know, initially I thought that the eight circles represented planets, but now, you know, now I'm thinking it might be something else. And uh, he, he says, uh, Enoch says, well, you know, perhaps the Romulans are preparing for the Olympics. Or maybe they're just big fans of Sonic the Hedgehog. Or it sounds like it could be an octonary. And she's like, an octa who now what now? And he says, oh, well, I'm not surprised you haven't heard of it. It's exceedingly rare. And uh, it's actually a planetary system that contains eight stars. And there's a system with seven of them that, that we've heard of. But uh, we've never actually observed one with eight. There is an apocryphal account in the ancient Romulan star charts that here tell of one. But the modern ones, uh, there, there's no such such mention. So Rafi gets to think, oh, you know, I've heard about the conclave of eight. I assumed that it was eight people. But what if it's eight stars? What if that's their meeting place? And uh so she's like, you are my favorite hologram. Enoch is her favorite. And he's very happy to be of use. So back on the artifact. And Nerissa is in the remains of Hugh's office with the remains of the Romulan troops that she sent in. And she finds Seven's card, the, the, the SOS beacon that they helpfully just left lying around. So now she knows that the Fenris Rangers are involved and has a pretty good idea of which one has come a calling. And elsewhere on the cube, Seven is leading Elnor into the Queen's cell, wherein she is powering it up and bringing everything online. And so... Elnor tells us he, he kind of gives an answer to a question that I posed last week. Specifically, he tells us that Picard released him from his vow, which is technically true. Picard released him when he was trying to get him to come with him. But I wouldn't have thought he would have let go that easily. But I guess when Picard said, I release you, he's like, cool, I can do my own thing now. Bye. And so that's why he decided to stay with Hugh. Picard released him from his vow. He found a new, even more lost cause to throw in with, which was that of Hugh and the Borg. So Seven starts uh, fiddling with some holographic controls and she initiates basically a repair sequence on the Borg cube. So it starts regenerating itself and all the, the cracks and fissures start to to close up and repair. Now, I have to say, James, this is this is a little bit of you know, spoilers going ahead. But even before I saw what would have ultimately transpire, my first thought there was, you know, 
If your ultimate goal is to retake this Borg cube, the first thing you should probably do is try and eliminate all of the Romulans on it somehow. Beam them into space, poison gas them, put them into some kind of stasis, something like neutralize the Romulans as a threat. Don't just, you know, start from the, oh, and we'll, we'll fix everything up and then we'll deal with the Romulans because I'm sure they're going to wait patiently for you to finish what you're doing. I found it unlikely. <sighs> Seven's bad at this. But anyway, so she does not heed my advice. And in, in fact, she starts this auto repair routine and the Romulans take notice because Nerissa's lackey suggests, hey, why don't we just blow the Borg into space? And Nerissa is like, I love that idea. Let's blow the Borg into space. And so, uh, you know, that is the plan. But that's later. For now, she she turns to the uh, the nearest mook and she's like, okay, give me your disruptor. I want a dual wield. So she takes her two disruptors and they set off to some business. Back on the SS Van Halen, Picard is chatting casually with Soji down in the mess and he's he's trying to connect with her because he wants to understand her. She still doesn't entirely trust him, I would think, and he wants to make that kind of personal connection with her so that they can they can be on a, a better footing, I guess. Indeed. And she's explaining to him that she just doesn't know what to make of her memories and her impulses. She doesn't know what's real. You know, she she doesn't know what is actually her and what is just a pre-programmed response. So he's trying to get her to understand that she has a lineage and she has a history, even if some of it is pre-programmed. There, there is something there for her to kind of reach back and fall back on. And she speculates, oh, you're, are you talking about Data? You're talking about that guy Data you keep talking to me about. And he's like, well, yeah, partly. And she says, tell me about Data. So he does. He, he paints a very beautiful picture of who Data was. And, uh, you know, it, as, as a fan, it kind of touched me, I have to say, in, in, in that special way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I miss Data. I, we all do, I think. Yeah, absolutely. But we're meant to. I'm sure that was the point of this speech. But so then she asks him, okay, well, if Data was here, what would he say about you? You know, and, and Picard kind of infers that means, oh, you know, if, if Data had lived and I had died, how would Data have described me? And he, he tells her, you know, I, I'd like to think that he would have thought of me as, you know, somebody who tried to help him, who was a friend, but also stayed out of his way as much as I could when when it was required and, and somebody who tried to, you know, basically somebody who tried to do right by him. And then Soji just kind of blurts out, he loved you. And I'm sure we're meant to to understand that that comes from deep within her somewhere that she doesn't know where, but it's a reaction that she had. So, you know, hopefully that is true. I'd like that very much. And not just something that they threw in there because they thought it would be good. I mean, it's a moot point because these are fictional characters, so we can believe whatever we want to believe about how Data felt about Picard. But it's a nice thing to think that that, that is actually the truth. Agreed. So elsewhere on the SSVH, Raffi encounters another hologram. Uh, this is one that we haven't met yet. The last of them we will come to find out. And that is the emergency engineering hologram, Ian. 
Speaking of pulling at our heartstrings and falling for the uh, low-hanging fruit, I was so excited that they paid homage to Mr. Scott and making the uh, Ian chief engineer Scottish with the Scottish accent. So I was very happy to hear that, very excited by that, and very appropriate for the uh, NCC 5150 should have a Scottish engineer. So very well done. Nice, nice, nice gesture. It's a burr, laddie. It's a (laughs) scotch burr. But yes, uh, Rafi talks to Ian. She says, hey, have you seen Rios? He's like, aye, he's probably hiding in his quarters. This must stop. It has gone too far. <laughs> I'm going to butcher that. I'm so sorry. But so she, she says, hey, you're an engineer, right? I'm going to ask you a question that actually has nothing to do with engineering. He's like, lay it on me. And so she says, uh, what are the odds that an octanary system is a naturally occurring phenomenon? And he's like, well, no, they're practically nil. I'm, you know you know what I've, I just realized I'm drawing on here, James, for this accent? It's Scrooge McDuck. That's what ah. I'm doing. <laughs> or possibly Flintheart Glomgold. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> So they determined that this octanary system was probably artificially created, which, you know, brings Rafi more questions than answers. But since she loves a good mystery, it's all good. Anyway, she, uh, you know, deep in her quest to find Rios, she then takes a detour to her quarters for some reason. And she decides uh, she needs a little tipple. She she wants her some booze. So she goes to the replicator, but the replicator no playing nice. It will not replicate her any booze. And we find out the reason for that is that she locked herself out uh, a couple of weeks ago. She said, I'm locking myself out of replicating any booze. And we find that out because the hospitality hologram shows up and tells us. We don't get a name for him. I don't think we had one. I I guess they couldn't come up with a good name for (laughs) EHH. You know, but I guess we could informally call him Eh? (laughs) so she gets a visit at her quarters from and he tells her no you uh you actually can't have a drink because you locked yourself out um and you locked yourself out from unlocking yourself out and she's uh she's she's pretty unhappy about that but it is what it is. So she switches gears. She wants to know why they all kind of know many of the same things that Rios knows. And he gives us a little more exposition, namely that when he took control of La Sirena, he selected the self-scan option, which I guess produced holograms that looked and in many ways thought like him. How convenient. So uh, he he tells Rafi that what Rios needs more than anything right now is a friend. So we cut then to Rios's quarters, wherein he is sitting on the floor getting very, very, very drunk. Have you never dreamed of climbing inside the bottle? And he decides to, as I am led to understand often happens with people who are quite inebriated he gets himself good and sentimental and he starts to paw through his starfleet footlocker and raffi stops by she knocks on the door she's like hey rios baby i'm here i thought you might need a friend and he's like hey raffi honey go away captain's prerogative and so she very politely leaves (laughs) okay no problem (laughs) nothing to see here move along 
Um, so then he looks in this, he pulls out this cigar box that he paws through. It's got pips in it. It's got his old com badge and it's got a picture of him and who we are led to believe is his former captain, Alonzo Vandermeer. And so, uh, he, he also has this sketch, this, uh, kind of pencil sketch or ink sketch of what looks like a young him and somebody who looks very much like Soji. And he starts to get a little weepy when he sees that. But we don't get to explore that too much because we then cut back to the Borg cube where Elnor has a great idea. Why don't we just wake up all the Borg? And Seven says that would be pointless because they would have no function. They wouldn't know what to do with themselves. And she's like, well, I guess we could kind of rewire their transceivers and create a mini collective. And uh, for the ex-Borg, we could basically reassimilate them and use them as an army. And Elnor is like, yes, that's amazing. Let's do that. Let's totally do that. I should hope not. What could possibly go wrong? I love that idea. And Seven tells him it's not that simple because they once being reassimilated, they would not want to be released. And if I'm doing the assimilating, I might not want to release them. So I guess let's keep that in our back pocket as a possibility. Let's not rush it, shall we? Let's call that plan B. <laughs> back on the SSVH, the, the 5150, Raffi <laughs> is in Picard's study. I wonder if he got his permission to do that. To, to use it for her own purposes. That I can't answer. But, well, or Rios's permission. I don't know. It doesn't, none of this matters. Concur. None of this matters. She's in the study with the five holograms because, I don't know, maybe she's been anointed first mate, honorary first mate, and she can just abscond with all of his holograms in his stead? I, I don't know. It's a mystery. Uh, one assumes that they're busy running the ship, but I guess that it's not necessary. So... She's with them and they want to get down. Well, by they, I mean, she via them. They want to get down to brass tacks on what happened to Rios. They all have a part of the puzzle, but none of them really knows definitively what his whole deal is. So she gets to interrogating them. They all have holes in their memory, but through the course of talking, they, they all kind of come to the conclusion that back on the Ibn Majid, which uh, was captained by, as I said, Alonzo Vandermeer. At some point, something happened and Captain Vandermeer killed himself. And shortly thereafter, Rios had a breakdown and was discharged from Starfleet. Elsewhere on the Van Halen, in sickbay specifically, Dr. Agnes Girati wakes up. Oh, she's out of her coma, James. And she wakes up to a scowling Picard hunched over her. He is not pleased. I'm not happy. And uh, she she is like basically the first thing that she hears when she wakes up, it's not how are you feeling? It's not you tried to take your own life. You know, it's not you're you're going to be okay. It's hey you tried to kill Bruce Maddox. He was your mentor and your lover, and you tried to kill him, and you are going to be turned over to the authorities when we get to Deep Space 12. That's correct. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, that's a heck of a thing to wake up to. True enough. And then comes the excuses. I, I'm sorry. I know 
I know we're supposed to accept that Dr. Girati was a victim in all this, and we're not supposed to blame her for what she did to Bruce Maddox. I still blame her. You know, it's one thing to have something awful visited upon you. You are still responsible for the choices that you choose to make in response to that horrible action. This is something that I am trying to teach my daughter that, you know, just because you feel something doesn't mean you need to act on it, you know, and, and actions have consequences. So you don't just get a pass because you felt like it was the right thing to do at the time. But, uh, yeah, she explains that the mind meld with O poisoned her brain and, you know, she she had she had these horrible things, this these horrible images visited upon her and she was under a psychic brain lock that she was unable to talk about it. And the only way she gets through each day is comforting herself, thinking about taking her own life. That's the, the, the small bit of comfort that she allows herself to get her through the whole thing. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you had that done to you. You don't go and kill a good man just because you think, oh, well, this will be for the best. No, no, I don't give her that. I'm sorry. I said several weeks ago when we were talking about her that they would need to have a heck of a redemption arc for us to like her again. And maybe they think that's what this is. I don't buy it. Frankly, I'm not bought in. If that is your judgment, so be it. No, and also, too, if she has the uh, instinct to kill herself, that speaks volumes as well, that she was able to murder someone she really cared about and loved and someone who was very important to the storyline of this series instead of killing herself. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, I'm not a fan of Dr. Girardi at all. And uh, any excuse she comes up with just isn't jiving. I mean, she did kind of try to kill herself, or at least I think that's what we're supposed to think. And it didn't work. You know, she neutralized the, the tracker, but she didn't actually die from it. So, you know, maybe we're supposed to see that as a redeeming act, but I, I don't. I just don't. I'm sorry. You know, you, you listener, you are free to disagree with us. Absolutely. You, you are well within your rights to disagree. If you have a compelling counter argument that flies in the face of what we've said, Please, by all means, share it with us. We'd love to engage in a discourse. Go ahead and email us at vintagepicard at gmail.com or tweet at us or Facebook or Instagram. We are at Vintage Picard. We want to hear your opinion as well. So let us know if you think we're right. Let us know if you think we're wrong. We want to know what you think. I'd like that very much. Let us know because this is something that's probably not going to go away. And, you know, I want to know what you think. But back to some... Huh, I was going to say lighter fare. That's funny. This show doesn't really do lighter fare. Hardly ever. But uh, from one miserable sad sack to the next, Rafi finally decides to to go back to Rios's quarters. And she comes in. She gets him some coffee or espresso or something. I don't I'm not a I'm not a drinker of, of such beverages, so I really couldn't identify it by sight. But uh, do you have an idea of what it might have been, James? Ractagino? Okay, sure. Let's, <laughs> for lack of anything better, let's call it a Ractagino. She replicates him something, some wake-up juice, and, uh, you know, she, I guess, wants to try and get him out of his drunken stupor a little bit, and uh, even though coffee doesn't really do that, that's a myth, but no, that's neither here nor there. 
Um, <laughs> and I did notice, though, that I, and I'm sorry, I I know I'm not supposed to focus on these things. I am a pedant, as I've mentioned before on the show, but the lighting didn't make any sense in this scene. Like, unless they're parked right next to a star, it looked like bright daylight was shining in through the blinds in his court. Why does he have blinds, first of all, on a starship? Second of all, I thought they were warping towards Deep Space 12. Why does it look like bright daylight stationary right outside of it? It doesn't make any sense. It's I. You all right? Biting my tongue, biting my tongue, because there's a lot of show left to do. Okay, so, so, she walks in with the coffee, and there was one cute little moment where she kind of gestures at a record player, and she says, was that Captain Vandermeer's, uh, Walkman? So, you know, it's it's a little funny to think in the future that somebody wouldn't know the difference between a record player and a Walkman, because I guess, you know, when you're several hundred years in the future, the stretch of time between those two technologies, like the 30 years or so between those two technologies being prominent are not that significant. And it's easy to miss something like that. That's, you know, I I'll allow it. <laughs> I mean, you can replicate anything in the future, so. Yeah, maybe. But uh, so Rios, we find out he was so close to Captain Vandermeer that he pretended that he was his father. And... He was uh, absolutely broken to find out that Captain Vandermeer was a cold-blooded murderer. What? Eh? Well, it's true. We'll revisit that soon enough, because back down in the mess, Dr. Agnes Gerardi is talking to Soji. And we it's back, James. It took a hiatus for a couple of weeks, but it's back. Our favorite, I put that in very sarcastic quotes, our favorite narrative device on this show, the pointless intercut scenes are back. Delightful. So for the sake of clarity, I'm just going to pick one and play it out and then explain the other, even though through the, the story that we see, they are intercut. So in the mess, as I said, Dr. Gerardi is talking to Soji and... She's gobsmacked by Soji, by all the the subtle things that like, oh, you eat when you're hungry, you drink when you're thirsty, you sleep. Oh, my word. Oh, my stars and garters. You are just the most remarkable thing. And she thinks that Soji is a work of art. And Soji says, great, but do you think I'm a person right now here talking to you? Am I a person? To you, and Doctor Gerardi is kind of, uh, um, uh, and Soji presses on. She's like, "I am not going to give you the opportunity to kill me." Just FYI, you know, a a fun little threat between friends, and uh, oh shoot, I knew there was something. I forgot, James. Before I forget, I just wanted to let you know. 
I will not let you kill me. Ever. You will not have that opportunity. Just, I just, you know, before I forgot, I just wanted to let you know. Sleep with one eye open, Sajazi. I know where you live. Yeah, I mean, I have a general idea. I don't remember exactly where they live, so I think they're safe for now. Although, it is worth mentioning that I won't let them kill me either. Sure, I just just want to throw that out. Because we're so close, I just wanted to throw that out there. Weird, right? That's that's like one of those first date things, you know, like I, I would have thought the first time we were hanging out that would have come up. But no, it just that, that's see, that's me. That's the kind of uh, absent minded guy that I am. Never even occurred to me to tell you that I would not let you kill me. But uh, so so the oh boy, I mean, it would have to be a really good reason is what I'm saying. What is going on here? So so then Dr. Gerardi is like, hey, you know what? Now that I've met you, this is you're going to think this is weird. This is so funny. I, I actually don't want to kill you. Funny enough. Now that now that I've met you, I would not try to do that. Funny how that works. Like funny how once you actually meet somebody and they defy your prejudices that suddenly the situation changes. It's 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 funny how that works in life. Just just one of those one of those things. That's enough. You've made your point. But back to Rafi and Rios and uh, his story, which for my money is the more compelling story in this whole thing. So we learn that back on the Ibn Majid, what happened, we finally find out what happened. What happened is that Rios was on the ship when they encountered a small ship of unknown class and manufacture, and there were two passengers on it. They made first contact with a couple of unknowns, and uh, somebody who he refers to as the ambassador with the name of Beautiful Flower and a girl who looked exactly like Soji, who was named Jana. Now, two things I find interesting just from this initial exchange. One, there is a male version, seemingly, of the androids. So uh, I guess, you know, Soji has brothers as well. And, you know, it'll be interesting to find out what they look like. And if, in fact, they look like somebody that we've already seen, that I will find interesting. Uh, and maybe it won't. Maybe it'll just be, you know, just be somebody completely new. But that seems like the kind of curveball that they might throw us just for funsies. And the second thing is that uh, he was named Beautiful Flower. Now, we know that Dodge was named after a kind of orchid. And uh, we, we saw the greenhouse in that previous episode. So we know that flowers are kind of an important thing in Maddox's whole deal. So this is just another one of those... Uh, references that i don't know maybe we'll come to find the significance of this maybe it's just a theme that they decided to run with with no actual deeper meaning we have two more episodes to find out so i guess we'll find out in two more episodes but um so what happened on the ibn majid all these years ago is that they came on the ship and captain vandermeer 
told Starfleet, hey, uh, we met these two people. And then uh, they, they shared a meal. And then shortly thereafter, Captain Vandermeer gunned them both down in cold blood with a phaser. And we come to find out that the reason he did that was on orders from Starfleet security. And, you know, we know that means Commodore O. So basically he, he did that. And the reason he was told that he had to was because if he didn't, then they would destroy the Ibn Majid and everyone on it, which, you know, in the balance of things, uh, it's tough to side against him if those are the stakes. But side against him, Rios did. He went pretty hard against him, railing him for killing these two people. And he was so harsh in his confrontation that Captain Vandermeer put a phaser in his mouth and pulled the trigger. He ended his own life because he couldn't take it. And so Rios wound up having to cover it all up so that what Vandermeer did would mean something. And so that that's what happened. He he covered it up. He beamed the bodies into space and, and erased the transporter logs. And he told everybody that asked that Captain Vandermeer just killed himself for no reason so that the ship would be spared. And six months later, he just was a completely broken shell of a man and he was dismissed from Starfleet. Yeah, I don't understand that too. This cavalier attitude of Starfleet, how they just use human beings as uh they don't treat them as human beings it's just uh, oh you have a problem okay see you later get out you're out of the club yeah well you disagree with us go go you know we don't need you anymore i mean yes there is some measure of that but i also think that in this case if he was truly that bad that that psychologically messed up then maybe they thought it would be for his own good to get him out of Starfleet because he just couldn't handle it and it was a detriment to his own health. I don't know. I wasn't there, obviously, because this is a fictional show. But, you know, it. I'm just, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt on this particular one. But so, back on the Borg Cube, Narissa, who is, as a reminder, dual-wielding, starts gunning down ex-Borg. She walks into that kind of medical bay that we saw a few episodes ago and goes, pew, 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 pew. You get a disruptor blast. You get a disruptor blast. You get a disruptor blast. It's the death. Death, 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 death. Has it occurred to you that you might be the one with the problem? And uh, until finally there's one guy left. She lines up her shot and the disruptor misfires. It, it like starts smoking and sparking and, and it doesn't work. And that's why you dual wield James. Cause she had uh. a spare and she lined him up again and bam, bang, bang, lie down. You're dead. And this is a tiny, tiny nitpick that I have, but that guy went out like a chump. Like, not for nothing. I mean, she takes out the entire room, okay? And he just stands there. And then mm -hmm. she lines him up for a shot. And he just stands there, deer in the headlights. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then it doesn't work. And he just mm -hmm. stands there. And she picks up another disruptor and shoots him in the mm -hmm. shoulder. And he goes down from a shot to the shoulder, James, like a chump. <laughs> 
Beast attacks must end. I'm just saying, those ex-Borg, you take off their implants. Come on. Weak Target sauce. practice. There yeah. you go. They don't make them like they used to, James. I'm surprised he didn't ask if uh, he should get closer to her. Yeah. Would it, would, would it, would it help you if I, can I, do you want me to, can I, oh, okay, no, yeah, okay, all right, I'll just, I'll just stand, okay, let me know when you're ready, whenever you're ready, I don't want to rush you, take your time, so, uh, anyway, back in the queen cell, Seven and Elnor notice all of these life signs of the ex-Borg that are failing, one after the other, blinking out, frankly, a lot quicker than Nerissa would have been able to take them out. So one has to assume that the other Romulan mooks are also gunning people down. And then uh, we kind of cut to Nerissa in a different area, like overlooking the docking bay, I guess it would be, the, the shuttle bay. And she reaffirms the stakes of what the Jatvash are fighting for dramatically. You always did have a flair for the dramatic. Now, I have to say... I know this actress has been in a bunch of things. I have only seen her prior to this in Gotham, where she played a version of Poison Ivy. And, you know, I understand that that's a comic book show, so it's not the same tone. But from what I've seen of her in that show and this one, she completely lacks subtlety, like as an actress. She she has no subtlety. Every and that's why I've called her a cartoon villain before on this podcast because everything she does is mustache twirlingly evil. Like it's just it strains credulity at some point. But I don't know. Maybe I'm not giving her enough credit because of the material she's given, but I don't know. From what I've seen of her so far, I'm not impressed. Reconsider your decision. She sure is easy on the eye, though. Irrelevant. That may be, James, but man cannot live on eye alone. What? <laughs> so, back in the queen cell, uh, Seven's like, okay, desperate times, desperate measures, you know how this works. And she makes the decision she is going to jack in and become the Borg Queen. I am become Seven. Assimilator of Cube. If that's the good news, what's the bad news? And so some like tentacle things come down from the ceiling and jack into her spinal cord. Her eyes go black with like green lights where her pupils should be. And from her mouth emanates, we, we are bored. Resistance is futile. And so... Seven's moment of triumph is nigh. She has her army raised against the Romulans, prepared to strike, and they are all set to take over the cube, except at that moment, Nerissa's like, okay, now. And they open the doors and they blow out all the Borg into space, as they said they were going to do. I would. Now, setting aside the fact that I already established why that was a dumb idea for exactly this reason... If Seven is now the Borg, basically, and in complete control of everything, why did she let the doors be open? Shouldn't she be able to override that as the person who is the cube now? I find that hard to believe. Like, I don't understand why that was allowed to happen. I don't understand any of it. Seven is bad at this, James. That is an understatement. I mean, I guess when the this in question is being a domineering Borg queen, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. But just from a practical standpoint, she's a no good. You're right. Yeah, what about all the little um, 
trinkets fixing the Borg cube too in the outside. They just kind of disbanded too and let the doors open and all of the uh, Borg get flushed out. I don't know. I have to assume that those sections that they opened weren't damaged. So the drones weren't in those areas. I, I don't know. I'm just, I, we're engaging in idle speculation at this point. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't, whatever. It's, it's the story they chose to tell. So our, you know, nitpicking and critiquing it here isn't going to make any difference. Both of it. This is getting us nowhere. So back on the 5150, Soji kind of supports Agnes Gerardi physically. She's kind of holding her up and, and guides her back into the mess to join the rest of the crew who's sitting around a table. And, uh, Dr. Gerardi announces that she's going to turn herself in when they get to Deep Space 12. She's very sorry for what she's done. You think? I regret many things. And uh, she opines that this group is the closest thing that she's ever had to a not family. She pointedly does not say family. She kind of catches herself and says crew. And she screwed it up. And she's sorry about that too. So... Rios gets up and he replicates some French fries and peppermint ice cream and plops it down in front of Soji. And Soji's like, how did you know? And he's like, yeah, we'll get there. Oh, don't don't you worry. We'll cover that. And so then over the course of the the exposition, we find out that two or three hundred thousand years ago, someone placed a warning beacon on this world that we found out, you know, the the uh, the death world or whatever. The grief world is what they called it at the beginning of the episode. The the the, the glowy pizza triangle, whatever. Yeah, A-E-I-O-U uh, or sometimes, yeah, right. The glowy pizza table. You know what I'm talking about. So the admonition is what they called it. And the warning specifically states that when you reach some kind of technological artificial threshold, some certain level of synth evolution, someone bad shows up. Now, that seems to be kind of speculation on the part of the crew, which comes kind of out of nowhere to me. But she's like, yes, that is exactly right. Somebody bad shows up. So I guess that's what they fear. That's the destroyer that they fear. And so uh, they kind of speculate that 30 or 40 years ago, when Dr. Sung first had success with his positronic androids, the Jatvash took notice and they inserted the half Vulcan, half Romulan O into Starfleet, who then aggressively made her way up the ranks and was able to climb up to become the head of Starfleet security. How convenient. And they engineered the Mars incident. They ordered the assassination of these, you know, tooth synths on the Ibn Majid. And, you know, that's... That's how they manage to manage the situation. And Soji, Soji has a bit of a hissy fit. She bangs the table and, and deforms it because she's a super strong android and storms off to the bridge, wherein she immediately takes over the SS Van Halen. This one's mine. The Van Halen is now under new management. They've signed with a different label. You finished? <laughs> and, uh... So she she puts up force fields on the bridge and starts plotting a course to the nearest Borg transwarp corridor, which accesses the entire transwarp system, which 
If you don't already know what that is... Tell me what you know about this. I don't have time to get into it here. Suffice to say, the Borg have their own, like, super secret network of tunnels that allow them to move quickly through the galaxy. Thank you. And so Rios starts yelling at her for taking over his ship. She's a fine ship. And then out of nowhere, for seemingly no reason, he starts singing a lullaby in Spanish. And... The the only thing weirder than that is that it actually seems to work because Soji stops what she's doing and drops the force field. James, did I miss something? I watched this scene a couple of times. I don't understand why Soji stopped because she heard Rio singing something in Spanish. Well, I hope someday you will. I, I don't know if they're trying to tie in the brief time that he spent with uh, Jana that somehow she could speak Spanish and, and knew uh, unless he taught her or I don't know. I, I couldn't figure it out either. And um, uh, don't ask me. As you wish. So whatever. They were together for a handful of hours. Exactly. They had exactly. french fries and ice cream and yes. beautiful flower did a sketch. Like yep. at what, how long, when would he have taught her a lullaby? That. Unless all of a sudden the writers thought they were writing for an Elvis movie, it just doesn't make an ounce of sense. But they had to get the ship back in order, and that's what they decided to do. Writing with uh, some sort of a Spanish lullaby that was a, a shutdown sequence for an android that they barely knew. Okay. Riva Van Halen. Riva <laughs> Van Halen. Oh boy. This is foolish. Well, Sammy Hagar was a huge Elvis fan growing up, so there you go. All right. Well, you know, <laughs> I do have to admit, given the amount of exposition they've dumped on us in this episode, I wouldn't mind a little less conversation, a little more action. <laughs> well done, sir. Because all this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. I'm right behind you. Come on, come on. Anyway, so Picard, he says, you know, we tried it Maddox's way. We tried it our way. Let's just give this one to her. Let's try it her way. What's the worst that could happen? We shall find that out soon enough. And so, you know, he he kind of decides for everybody, yeah, let's do what she wants. And then he very very confidently strides over to Rios's captain's chair, sits himself down as the next generation theme plays under his actions. I, Starfleet captain, trained to command. And puts his hands up to work the controls. And then we got a wah, 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 when he admits he has no idea how to work the ship. Oh, it's certainly no joke. I don't like <laughs> I don't understand why they feel the need to undercut these scenes. It's again, I, it, I guess they feel like they need some comedy to punctuate all the seriousness of this stuff, but I don't think it works. I don't think it's necessary and I don't think they're good at it. Why not? It takes all the air out of the scene. Point taken. All right. Home stretch, James. I'm sorry. We're in the home stretch. So yep, yep, yep. Rios points out the flaws with Soji's plan of basically flying the ship naked into a transwarp corridor. You know, no chronoton field, no enhanced structural integrity field, no nothing. You expect us to just fly in there as is. And Soji gives him a, a like a head tilt and she's like, yeah, 
And he's like, well, this is still my ship. So she says, well, then will you please take me home for Jana's sake? Huh? 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 And he's like, yeah, okay, I got you. It's a model of simplicity. And then, then back on the Borg cube, we discover that all of the Borg have been blown into space. The ex-Borg will soon be mopped up. Um, just within hours, they'll they'll have them taken care of, except no, because the ex-Borg have mobilized and they jump the Romulaki and then they grab Nerissa and they swarm her and her magical transporter saves her. Her transporter ex machina beams her out in the nick of time once again and the Romulan fleet all warp away to try and presumably destroy this planet that everybody seems to be converging on. It would seem so. Back in the queen cell seven as queen says the cube is ours. And then a very scared Elnor asks her, so are you going to assimilate me now? And she looks at him and for a second, you don't know what she's going to say, but then she says, Annika still has work to do. And she disconnects herself from the ship and Seven is returned as herself. Finally, back on the SS Van Halen, we see a, a what to me looks like a new warp effect. I mean, over the years in Star Trek, we've seen many different depictions of a ship at warp. And this one kind of looks like a slipstream tunnel that they're kind of riding, which... I don't know, as as somebody who grew up watching the streaking stars of the next generation era, this is a little weird to me, but, you know, I guess I guess it's fine. It's just it struck me as a little odd. Did you notice anything particular one way or the other about that, James? No, I was kind of thinking the same thing where it looked like they were always going through a wormhole type. So yeah, I, I guess yeah, yeah. that's just, uh, yeah, the um, they decided to put their own little twist on sure. it and make it a little. Yeah, so. All right, that's fine. So Picard is kind of kind of stoically standing astride the bridge, and he opines that it reminds him of when he was an ensign on the Reliant, working the night shift. And, you know, he he forgot how much he enjoyed the silence. The Reliant, I thought, was a nice little callback, and you know, it's it's kind of cool to think that one, that the ship was in service for that long especially given everything that happened in Star Trek two and, uh, and two, you know, that, that Picard, this, this legendary Starfleet Admiral started out on a ship with such pedigree, let's say. But, um, so, so he gets to talking to Rios and we come to find out that he knew Captain Vandermeer a little because before he was captain, Vandermeer served as first officer to an old friend of his, Marta Betanides, from the Academy, who we saw in the Next Generation episode, Tapestry. Oh, okay. Ah, nice. Which was, you know, another nice little callback. Well done. Well done. Yeah. And so Picard is surprised, in spite of everything, to hear what, you know, Captain Vandermeer did, because to all accounts, he thought he was a good man. But, uh, you know, he, he asked, did he did he know that they were synths when he did it? And Rios is like, yeah, probably. I think that's the only way he was able to convince himself to do it. And he's like, you know, I, I hate that he died thinking that Starfleet betrayed him. And Picard is like, well, actually, they did betray him. 
You know, even though they weren't specifically the ones that gave him those orders, you know, they betrayed him and all of us with the synth band. They betrayed our ideals. And he he starts going off on this, you know, basically retread of the speech from the first episode that he gave on the uh, on the news and and what he told Clancy. And so uh, Rios is not convinced. He said, you know, they think Soji is the destroyer, the Romulans. The Romulans think Soji is the destroyer. Is she? She took over my ship in five minutes. Imagine what an entire planet of her could do. And then Picard deploys the Picard speech and he says, well, that may be, but, you know, we have something that they don't have. We have openness and honesty and we cannot allow ourselves to succumb to fear of the unknown and what might happen. And unfortunately, his speech is interrupted by Soji, who walks in and basically says, yeah, we're here. So she whips out Pavel Chekhov's compass and it points straight towards the Borg transwarp corridor, which opens up and we see the ship fly in and as they go in, right behind them, we see Narek's ship decloak and fly in after them. And then we go to next time on Star Trek Picard. And so what we can expect next week on Star Trek Picard is some shenanigans. Basically, they clearly they arrive at the planet, which they're calling Capalius, I think. And so we see what appears to be a planetary defense system, which looks like unfolding flower petals. And as I'm saying that right Mm. now, I'm once again getting hit over the head with this flower motif that they seem to have with these synths, uh, which I don't know why it's a thing, but it seems to be a thing. There is a point at which the Van Halen loses power and they're trapped in the darkness And then we see a scene of flaming wreckage that is falling through the atmosphere, which I'm sure we are meant to believe is the Van Halen. But if you freeze frame it at just the right moment, it really looks like one of those floral planetary defense satellite things. That is actually what is flaming and falling. So rest assured, James, it's not the 5150. Oh, thank you. Oh, but James... I feel like I have talked for several days straight. I need a break. So this would be a perfect time, I think, to throw it over to you and ask you, James, what did you think of this episode? Analysis. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't have much to say about it, unfortunately. But uh, I'll be honest with you. I was kind of in a bad mood when I watched it. So I don't know if that's going to influence my opinion on the episode. So overall, I was disappointed with it. I thought that uh, you hit all of the big loopholes that were in it and question marks and distractions of the episode. I was really let down with the answers that we were anticipating of getting, uh, especially from the Jad Vash, how ignorant and, and foolish they are and weak they are. Also to Admiral Clancy for somebody, please, somebody, please get her a dictionary and read it to her because she really doesn't know, does she does not have a very good command of the English language. So I don't understand the, the cursing. I know we've talked about that before, and but come on. you know. Or at least get her a thesaurus. I mean, you've got something. a universal translator. There are hundreds, yeah. if not thousands of languages worth of curses that she could throw out there. Why stick to just the one? Yeah, that That's a good point, too. And yeah, I did not 
watch the next time on Star Trek Picard on purpose, just because I didn't want to confuse what was going on with this episode. So overall, especially compared to the previous two, episodes 7 and 6 of Star Trek Picard, I thought that 8 was a bit of a letdown and appropriately named Broken Pieces. Yeah, all right. Well, thank you. And I just have a couple of pieces myself, pieces of speculation, mainly for what we might be able to expect in these last two episodes about the direction where this series is going. So early on in the episode, I mentioned the tie-in with Discovery with Control, the artificial intelligence gone Skynet. And I kind of wondered if they were going to be the ultimate evil that was being warned against from the admonition. And I don't know. I mean, like I said, the timeline doesn't really line up. So I don't know if that's what is coming. But one other thing I thought it could be, and this would tie in thematically with the rest of the show, is I wonder if the evil that shows up is the forerunners or or the creators of the Borg. Like the whatever, you know, like once synthetic life gets to a certain point, that's when these things came. I wonder if that's what led initially to the Borg being created and if those, you know, creating race or whatever is still out there. Or I guess it could wind up being some variation of the Borg itself. But given that they've already been a threat in Starfleet, for 30 years or whatever, for that to be the big reveal seems like it would be a huge letdown. So I'm not going to hang my hopes too much on that. So the other thing is a prediction, a concrete prediction for what we're going to see in, I'm going to guess the last episode. It could start at the end of episode nine and culminate in episode 10, but this is my prediction for where this is going to go. So I see the Starfleet squadron and the Romulan fleet kind of converging on this planet and going to battle with one another for the fate of the planet. And I'm sure whatever technology the synths have will also be brought to bear. And, uh, you know, the, the SSVH will be thrown in there and, you know, maybe things will, will start to turn the Starfleet way and start to look good, or, or maybe it'll just be battle to a stalemate. And then the ultimate evil that they've been foreshadowing shows up and throws a wrench into everything and starts decimating everybody equally. And then, James, then what I think is going to happen is that the ultimate evil, whoever that may be, is going to wind up being thwarted when we see screaming into the rescue to save the day seven and elnor come flying in on the board cube let's not rush it shall we that's what i'm staking my claim on that's what i expect to happen if they can come up with something better that'll surprise me i'd love to see it i'd love to be wrong i'd love to be surprised as long as it is a pleasant and satisfying surprise so you know maybe maybe we will come to find out that that is what happens Maybe we will not. Maybe you have your own theories on where this series is going to go. We are just two episodes left in it. There's not a lot of runway left. So we want to know what you think. If you have a better theory, we definitely want to hear it. Like I said, email us at vintagepicard at gmail.com. Tweet at us, Facebook, Instagram. We are at Vintage Picard. We can be had. You can you can use the hashtag Vintage Picard to get at us. Whatever you want to throw out there, we want to hear it. So 
let us know what you think. And if you have suggestions for how we can improve the show, let us know that too, because we really want to hear it. And we really want you to subscribe to this program and spread the word to help us grow this show so we can all enjoy it together now and going forward. And so while we look with bated breath forward to what they have in store for us next week, that is next week for now. We will simply leave you off with the admonition to, please, my friends, choose to live. Bye! Why don't you tell me what exactly, uh, no, that sounds too aggressive. That's not what I meant. No, no. You're allowed to have opinions, honest. Here we go.